Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Jane Gerson of the National Post. Welcome back to Canada Land Shortcuts. Thanks for having me. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Matthew Busby O'Connor, Andrzej Ribak, Dana Deeth, Matthew Reichertz, Sam Mills, Matthew McEwen, Kate Melville, Bill Hullett, and Alexander Cairns. Alexander, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I think it is important for me as a Canadian to pay attention to what is going on within Canada and not get overwhelmed by American media influence. This episode is also brought to you by our founding sponsor, the people who helped this show exist, FreshBooks.com. Jen, can I talk to you about accounting software for a second? I would love to hear about accounting software, Jesse Brown. Everybody loves that. Small business accounting software that is designed for you the non-accountant. This is for self-employed people. This is for freelancers. This is for small businesses. It's really easy to use. It helps you save a lot of time and get organized and get paid quicker. They now let people pay you with credit cards. And now I'm seeing this from both sides of the equation because people send me invoices and a lot of the people who freelance for Canada Land send FreshBooks invoices. And you just feel like they're doing things right and that they are a professional when you get this beautiful looking invoice. And then you can pay them with a credit card. I don't know why people always took months to pay me when I was a freelancer. Because if you're not paying much, pay the freelancer quickly. That's what we try to do. And I find that I still get paid quicker when I send invoices using FreshBooks. You can try it for free for 30 days. You get everything in that free trial, including the mobile app. And when you do decide to become a customer, and I believe that you will do that, if you need something like this, FreshBooks is the best choice. I think you'll probably sign up. Tell them the Candleland told you about FreshBooks. You'll be doing the show a favor. Thanks, FreshBooks. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help, and one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash Once again, it's betterhelp.com 
slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. It is a small state that gets a lot of attention. Every four years, right around this time, Tonight is no different in New Hampshire. Ms. Clinton's nomination battle has been much tougher than expected. New Hampshire voters took their anger out on establishment politicians last night, handing big wins in the primary to Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. From second to first for both. The attention has been white hot. Polar opposite candidates gained crucial credibility. Jen, why are we listening to all these Canadians tell us about the American presidential race? One, because it's fascinating. This race is just mind-blowingly interesting. And secondly, because you will not find two countries more economically or politically entwined than Canada and the U.S. They are the 800-pound gorilla in our room. So we don't really have the luxury of ignoring their political dramas. Who they elect and who gets to be president is going to have a direct impact on us. I didn't say, why don't we all ignore the... I mean, it is fascinating. I'm following it. If it ends up being Trump versus Sanders, like, it's going to be bonkers interesting. But, I mean, I know in a traditional newscast why you would lead with that. It is the most interesting and maybe even the most important story on any given night. But beyond the anchors, the voices that we just heard, we have a lot of feet on the ground following this, Canadians reporting on this in America. CBC's got Paul Hunter, Megan Fitzpatrick, Lindsay Duncombe. CTV's got Joy Malbin, Global's got Jackson Proskow, Star has Daniel Dale in the States now, The Globe has Joanna Slater, Paul Coring, Richard Warnica for you guys, Alexander Panetta for, for Canadian Press, and some of their coverage is about what the Canadian impact is, but a lot of their coverage is duplication. It's stuff that you could get from an American news source, and frankly... I would kind of rather get this stuff from Politico or from, I mean, Gawker is now all about American politics or the New York Times. They have the sources. They're in the game in the way that these Canadian correspondents are not. Like, is that really a wise distribution of Canadian journalistic resources? These people were paying them beyond their salaries, their per diems and their travel costs. Like, why are they there? Are you seriously going to make an argument to me that Canadians should just stay home and let Americans cover? I mean, where does that argument end? Should Canadians just stay home and let American news sources cover what's happening in Syria and Iraq? Because whatever, we don't want to see duplication. It's a waste of our time and effort. I am never, ever going to make an argument for keeping our people home on major news events because, well, the Americans can do it better. That's a terrible, terrible argument. It's a practical argument. We have to decide what we can do well if we're not covering our own country appropriately. Well, we are covering our own country. Don't be silly. It's a cost conversation. If 
our outlets are finding that the coverage that we can produce on what's going on in America is worth the cost of sending those people down there. We will send them every single time. And, and the fact that we have so many boots on the ground in America covering this stuff is indicative to me that there's a huge local appetite for this kind of coverage. Would it be a little bit more lovely if you had a little bit more um, variety in the types of coverage? Maybe, maybe not. I actually think that the people who've been on the ground have done a great job. I like that we're actually investing in foreign coverage. And I frankly, I think that the duplication of coverage conversation has been used as an excuse to win away resources for foreign reporting. And it's left our local newspapers much thinner and with much less breadth and context than it otherwise would. I mean, the other thing I think you have to keep in mind here is that there's a benefit to having people on the ground for these types of major events that isn't necessarily apparent in the day-to-day -day coverage. Richard Warnica will come back for the post for us with a much better understanding of American politics and the American political system that he will be able to use for years. That is an investment in our staff and in our institutional understanding and knowledge base. And I don't think you can underestimate that. I'm thrilled that we have so many people on the ground because it would be so easy for any of these organizations to just say, whatever, Politico will do it better. And to me, that is an argument for, you know, then why are you doing anything at all? They're nice to have. They're not need to have. I mean, they're need to have if they're writing about NAFTA, if they're writing about pipelines, if they're writing about the impact on Canada. And this isn't a slight. A lot of them do fantastic work. But, like, you're making an argument from another era. There was an era where the CBC could consider itself a world-class journalistic enterprise that had bureaus and people on the ground. We, you know, who's our man in Siam? I mean, like, it's over. you got to make tough choices. And if you actually feel like we're doing an adequate job of covering our own city councils and our own everything that's happening in this country that is getting under. I mean, you're, you're talking to me from post media and you're saying that you have the luxury of having people whose job it is, is to we write stories. We have one that person. We have one person down there. It's not like post media has sent 20 people to cover this. We have one person for an entire newspaper chain. But I'm making a larger argument. I don't think that it's such a big problem. But you're making that a larger we... argument that argues for less coverage, less in-depth coverage, less institutional knowledge. And it's an argument that justifies less reporting resources to important news events. I mean, you don't know what any of those individuals on the ground will be able to bring back until they're actually there and have the opportunity to do the reporting. You can't presume that. You can't second guess that. I mean, that's the problem with reporting. It's expensive and you can't always predict what you're going to get out of it. And also, I mean, nice to have versus need to have. Look, if the audience wants it, if you can make a business case for sending somebody over to a primary in New Hampshire, then we're a business. We got to respect that. Post readers are rapidly consuming this stuff. Of course they are. But if you ran an AP story on the exact same thing, you think that they would blink and notice? I, I think that if you're going to make the argument that we should just run AP copy anyway, then why are we here? As to I cover said, Canada. You're, you're, you're making a silly argument. You're, you're saying that we are putting so many re bodies on the ground that we are draining coverage from Canadian issues. And that is absolute nonsense. Uh, a paper as wealthy and as big as a Toronto Star sending one person to cover the primaries is not substantively lessening the important coverage that they are doing in every other area. The coverage is entirely commensurate with the importance of the event and with the resources that can be spared. You're not going to have me go along with saying, screw it, Richard Warnica should just be sitting here covering Toronto City Council. He's more valuable to, you know, Jesse Brown's sense of what's important and right in journalism. So therefore, <laughs> Richard Warnica shouldn't be fucking covering the new, new, the new Hampshire primary. That's nonsense. I'm happy Richard's there. 
I'm happy Daniel Dale's there. I'm happy Joanna Slater's there. They're bringing a local voice back to their local papers on an important international event. And frankly, we should be seeing more of it, not less of it. And we should be arguing more for it as opposed to less of it. I'm happy when you're happy, Jen, but I have to take issue with some of the things you said. And first of all, I'm going to concede that the institutional knowledge argument that these people come back with a thorough understanding of America and when other stories pop up where that's necessary in their context. That's sort of the argument for having beat reporters and having people who have decades of experience and and everybody just brings from moving from one beat to the next after a 10-year stint. These things all pay off in the long run and they help an institution deepen the substance of their coverage. And it's wonderful. We should have people everywhere. But when you say that you've only got Richard Warnock, well, that's true in that that's the only person that Post Media has actually like following this on the ground. But I'm banging a larger drum here because the Post's duplication is not just that Richard Warnica is writing wonderful things that are also being written by dozens of other American journalists. I'm also talking about your column and all of the columns that are being written in Canada where our people turn their attention towards American politics and write op-ed pieces that are not necessarily within the context of what does this mean for Canada, but here are my thoughts as a Canadian on the American race. I have a concept of what we're going to need to do in the future that is based on a larger concept of like, we are going to have much, much less to work with. Jesse, I also wrote an op-ed on cauliflower for fuck's sakes. Well, I worry about that too. I think that there's a long overdue conversation about why there are 20 microphones in the face of the same person at a press conference getting the exact same sound. Like the, the amount of duplication that happens not just abroad, but here instead of looking at where are there no journalists and what can we own. You're making a moral argument for what we should be covering as opposed to what people actually want to read is the fundamental problem here. No, but you're assuming that's your job to give them everything they want to read. If you imagine your reader as somebody who's only reading the National Post. No, you have to balance both realities. Yeah, of course, there's a necessity that we cover certain things and we have to cover certain things off and that is what we have to do as part of our mandate. And there's also a conversation that we have about giving people the sorts of things that we think are going to interest them and are going to keep them coming back to our paper time and time again. And I mean, op-eds are really interesting things because people really enjoy the National Post op-eds, whether they're Andrew Coyne or Iveson or or Gurney or or Urbex. Or Jen Gerson, whose op-eds I I enjoy very much. There you go. But people come back for these names to the National Post again and again and again. They're one of the centerpieces of our paper. Why do people pick up the National Post every day? It's because they want to read their columnists. They want to read their columnists' take on these sorts of issues. And that's become a, a foundational thing for us. I don't think that because you happen to want you know, more city hall coverage that that necessarily makes the National Post bad for focusing on op-eds. I think that there's an ecosystem in journalism. We don't all do the same thing. We're not all supposed to do the same thing. I want to mess with your flow here just to tell you that I agree with you 100%. The National Post has not invested in local reporting. Its brand is not going to shift and suddenly be known for that. It is known for its editorials. And it's known, I think that if, if there's a National Post in five years, my guess is, and this is like a prediction, and it's also my suggestion for the National Post strategy for survival, if the National Post's brand and continues to become and is known for and maybe even exclusively is about the best editorial writing and the best financial coverage in the country, I think that's a strong peg to stand on. Whether or not you're going to have somebody following the U.S. presidential campaign four years from now, I think that's anyone's guess. Jen, I need to talk with you about the Gomeshi trial for a minute or two. Okay, but with the enormous caveat that I am not anywhere near the Gomeshi trial, so I'm way out here in Calgary, man. I'm following it on Twitter, and obviously I'm reading what people are writing, but I'm not, uh, I ain't in that courtroom, and a lot of other people are. I'm not in that courtroom either, and a lot of people are, and that courtroom is down the street. I am watching what the media does. That's sort of the role here, and that's what I want to talk about. 
And just a bit of a quick summary of, of how the media has handled this since last week when we talked about it. There was the Toronto Star's media lawyer, a lawyer who was representing a bunch of different media, uh, but I think first and foremost, the Toronto Star, lobbying the court, arguing with the judge for permission to release the bikini picture of the first witness to the media so the media can decide whether or not they wanted to blur her face and publish it or not. And I want to point out that this is the Toronto Star lobbying the court for a bikini picture of a woman who came to the star as a confidential source. This woman came to the Toronto Star and said, will you protect my identity and tell my story? And they said, yes. And now here's the Toronto Star asking for her bikini picture, which uh, I think the judge rationally did not give them. I'm going to point out something else in the Toronto Star, that when we broke the story in the Star with myself and Kevin Donovan, the initial story that broke the news that four women were accusing Gameshi of various types of assault and abuse and harassment ran on the front page below the fold. A headline above the fold from last week, Lucy de Couture hung out with Gameshi after alleged assault. So this is just a statement of fact. The fact that one of these women hung out with Gameshi after the alleged assault was given more prominence on the front page of the Toronto Star than the initial story that these allegations occurred at all. Then we've got the huge swarm of reporters, many of whom are not courtroom reporters, live tweeting this. And there is a publication ban on all witnesses except for Lucy de Couture. Uh, originally, the publication ban covered everyone except for Lucy de Couture, who opted out of it. And Kevin Donovan of the Toronto Star and Sam Pisano of Sun both tweeted highly identifying information from the testimony of one witness. And then Donovan and Simon Hupt of the Globe and Mail and Yana Romalutis of CBC and Sarah Bosvold of Chatelaine, and then it was picked up by CBC News Alerts, all of them tweeted the name of a fourth witness, and at the time her name was covered. It was later clarified her name was covered under the publication ban. This is severe stuff. I can tell you from investigating these stories that when you speak to not just the people who are accusing Gameshi of these things, but people who who can corroborate the story or who spoke to those people or who saw them, they say, are you going to use my name? And if the answer is yes, they might not speak with me. Most of them wouldn't. So to mess that up, to expose illegally this woman's name, to the public, the effect that that has, not on her, because she ultimately said, I don't care, you can use my name, but the effect that that has on future witnesses, people who are deciding whether or not to corroborate people's testimony in these kinds of cases is incredibly destructive. And, and again, this duplication thing, we've got dozens and dozens of journalists in that courtroom, most of whom are not courtroom reporters. This was an honest mistake from those journalists, Jen. I, I think that they're there. They're just like stenographers. They're just writing down what they hear. And they didn't realize till afterwards that they violated the publication ban. But it's not a joke that they did that. Okay. So the first issue is the Toronto Star petitioning to have the bikini pick released. And whether or not the Toronto Star granting the first witness anonymity in their reporting, then ethically obliged their lawyer to refrain from seeking that evidence during the trial, knowing that that evidence, if it were published, would have to have the woman's face blanked out, so it wouldn't be identifying per se. That is an interesting question. And I think that that one comes down to the ethics of how you treat a source in court against the public interest of the picture itself. But what about a strategy? Do you ever want a woman to come forward again, ever? 
like just from a strategy point of view as a newspaper that wants people to bring them stories, that wants sources to trust you? Like forget about ethics and morals. Like isn't that just dumb? I think that that's a third valid point. The third valid point being the ethics versus public interest versus from a strategic position. Okay. Can you make a public interest case that isn't based totally on salaciousness for the public interest of this bikini pic from to be released? I think you probably can make a public interest case, but it's a weak one, frankly. So, you know, I'm a little iffy on that one. The first point, is there an ethical obligation that this paper has to not seek the pick, considering their relationship with the source itself? That, I think, is actually a bit more tenuous, because the reporter in question certainly agreed to not identify this woman. The picture itself wouldn't necessarily identify this woman, because her face would be blanked out. Did their lawyers have an obligation to not seek something that they believe to be in the public interest because of that promise? I don't know. On the whole, do I think the judge made the correct call? Yes. So, uh, I don't know, this is a tricky one. Do I think you might be correct in terms of pointing out that there is a strategic interest that the paper might have in not seeking that bikini interest? Yes, I agree with you on that. You know, if you are trying to portray yourself as a defender of the public interest and, and a paper that is supportive of victims and victims coming forward, that going after a salacious bikini pic is probably the wrong instinct here and was probably the wrong thing for them to do from that perspective. I'm not entirely convinced that they were ethically obliged not to seek it, though. Is there an aspect of basic human decency? Yeah, we're journalists, though. We're assholes. <laughs> if you're going to start chiding journalists on basic human decency issues, there's all sorts of things that we could start talking about. We could start talking about trying to get pictures of recently murdered people from grieving families. That offends basic human decency. That was my first job in journalism. We do it all the time. But this is why people hate us and people aren't wrong. They're not wrong to hate us for this. No, people are absolutely not wrong to hate us. Journalists are mean people. We are trained to be assholes. We're trained to suppress the basic human decency part of us and do what we think is actually in the greater public interest. The bikini pic kind of comes up with that. Yeah, is it, is it kind of make me feel a little gross inside to try and make that pick public? Yes, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that there's no public interest argument for doing so. I think that there's a combating public interest, the public interest of the newspaper to be a safe place to bring stories. If you're going to, with one hand, say, trust us, come to us, speak with us, we will protect you, and then shank you when, when it's advantageous and, and argue, well, that also is in the public interest. But that's also assuming that the newspaper has only one role here. One of the roles of the newspaper is to be a safe place for people to come and bring their stories, and that's a strategic role. Another part of the role of a newspaper is to report the fucking news. And if they felt that the bikini was fucking news, then that's what it was. So this is some tough talk of like, like this is just the way it is. We serve the public interest. People get hurt. That's how it is. And I'm not sneering at that. I think you're absolutely right. Sometimes there is a greater public good. I'm not sure this was a case of it. I just don't know how you contrast that with the next thing we're going to discuss, which is this gong show of untrained reporters just wildly tweeting and then deleting this fourth witness's name, who is later revealed to be Sarah Dunsmore and who's now not in the publication pen. It's dumb. Don't do it. I'm 100% on your side on this one. Uh, don't do that shit. I think that one of the effects of them having done that and of the overall tone is that it's played into the drama that Gameshi's defense is conjuring up and the cliffhangers and the fact that everyone's getting really into these granular details and these plot twists that there was an email that someone forgot. And it's fueling the eggs. And I want to talk briefly about the eggs. Do you know, you know who I'm talking about, Jen? Uh, Twitter trolls? Yeah. Who gives a shit about Twitter trolls? Mute. That's what the mute button's for, man. If a bunch of, like, Twitter trolls want to talk about how John Gomeshi has been unfairly blah 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 by the evil women, 
I don't know what to, where to begin with this one. Yeah, of course it fuels the, everything fuels those people. <laughs> people like that will find an excuse to trash on women over nothing. I, you have to stop caring about the eggs or you will go insane. I used to feel the same way, just toughen up and ignore the eggs. I mean, we call them eggs to those who are not active on Twitter or aware of the eggs because people who have kind of just anonymous accounts on Twitter, they don't even want to put their face on it. They just have the default image and the default image is an egg and, and the eggs have awoken. When you search your mentions and there are tons of angry eggs with names like Hot Rod or Keeping It Real or like Hardcore Skeptic, and they're just furiously angry or feeling very excited about these plot twists that it plays into some narrative of their own, I'm finding it hard to ignore. And I think that there is this validation that a lot of guys are feeling out there around this case. And I do think it's worth talking about for a second. Sure. Guys who feel that the courts are virulently anti-male, guys who are deeply concerned about false accusations by scorned women that can ruin a good man's reputation. And I think that there are a lot of eggs out there who feel like vindicated and excited by the inconsistencies in the witnesses' testimony. And I, I just want to like address a comment. I don't engage with them on Twitter. Maybe there's some eggs listening right now. And can I speak to the eggs for a second? Speak to those eggs. Be skeptical, eggs. I want you to be skeptical. I want you to question everything you're hearing, but please be careful about what you're putting out there. And please just remember that whatever you think of these three witnesses that we just heard on the stand, and I might argue, I would argue, I think, with the conclusions you're reaching about them, but please keep in mind that their allegations are only three of the 23 allegations of abuse and assault and harassment that many different people have against John Gameshi. And most of these people have never met each other. And just go through the process that I had to go through in reporting this story and considering like, okay, what if it is all made up? How would that even work? How would you get so many people to tell such similar stories who've never met each other, who corroborate details of each other's stories? Think about it, Eggs. Think about the story that was reported about the woman's bruised body, cracked ribs that was shown to CBC executives that got Gameshi fired, like that's not a part of this trial even. So unless you are really sure that this guy never hit or choked anyone who didn't ask to be hit or choked, the petty little point you feel has been proved by somebody not remembering an email or not wanting to talk about the fact that they had a sexual encounter with him after the alleged assault, whatever you think that proves, consider all the other people out there who may actually have been punched or choked by this guy, and consider that maybe there are women you know in your life who these things have happened to from other men who are reading your tweets and are making conclusions about what they can trust you with based on what you're saying, eggs, and other people too. And this is not to say that no one should question these stories or be skeptical. I think you should. But what lots of people are saying right now, what Barbara Kay is saying, like Barbara Kay tweeted, so Lucy de Couture, maybe you believe that memory is fallible and that when you sent a letter that you regretted, 13 years later, it's possible that you've suppressed that and you don't actually remember it. Or maybe she's lying when she said, I never had contact with him. And she was actively misleading the court, as I think Barbara Kay believes she was. But if you feel like 100% about that, then Barbara Kay, stand by your tweet that she's a liar, right? But maybe you don't know. I haven't seen this tweet here, so I can't actually speak to this specific tweet. You know, this this case is so difficult. It's so hard because men and women, I think, generally speaking, are re reacting to it so differently. Men are looking at this being like, they can't understand why someone who would claim to have these kinds of experiences with Mr. Gomeshi would then go on to engage in the types of behaviors that these women clearly did. They can't wrap their heads around this, and therefore they conclude from this that the credibility of these women is shot, and this might actually be a conspiracy, this might actually be a lie. I'm not saying all men believe that, but that generally seems to be the conversation that I hear men having. Women generally seem to listen to these women 
and say, while acknowledging that from a court perspective, a lot of their credibility has been shot, at the same time, a lot of women who have been in abusive relationships can relate with the seemingly incongruent behavior after the fact. A lot of women have been trained and taught to be nice, to keep things on the level, to try and placate people, to, to not be entirely trusting of your own experiences or your own interpretation of those experiences, and to try and suppress bad feelings and turn them into good feelings. And as a result, you know, a lot of women who've been in these situations look at those emails, they look at the after-fact behavior, and they completely relate to it and they understand it. And I think we have a, a fundamental difference between the way men are trained to be in the world and the way that women are trained to be in the world. And that's not actually an easy thing to overcome. It's not an easy thing to understand if you're coming at it from one perspective or the other. I think you described that really well, Jen. And I think that that is why I think that the skepticism is good if it's not like this definitive accusatory, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would a victim act like that? Because there's actually an opportunity here. Hanane is putting forth these sort of normatives, like why would a victim come back for more? That's a great question to ask. That's a great question for men to ask. That might be a positive outcome of this if that question is asked in an open-hearted and curious way as opposed to a, this doesn't square with what I think a victim should do and therefore the following. Sure, but at the same time, we also have to be realistic about the fact that what's happening right now is a court trial and people are covering what is happening in a court trial and in a court of law, they are going to look at this behavior and it is going to affect their credibility. It just is. Personally, do I believe these witnesses when they say that they've been hit by Gian Gomeshi? Yeah, I do believe them. I believe that it doesn't make sense for them to make something like that up. The discrepancies to me um, are pretty easily accounted for by just the time lapses involved. I can understand why women would engage in some of that after-the-fact behavior considering how powerful Gian Gomeshi was and considering how his behavior seemed so weird and incongruent and off and on and back and forth. In saying that you feel like he probably did it, you're not saying anything that's that radical. In fact, none of the eggs are saying that they don't think he did. Very few people are out there saying, I don't think he hit or choked these women. And in fact, he has never said and will not say on the stand, I never hit and choked these women. And so then we get to a question of consent, which I think is a relevant one, maybe for sentencing. It certainly was a relevant one in investigating the story. And if I thought that there had been consent, I wouldn't have published the story, been involved in publishing the story. But people should know that the law actually doesn't care. I mean, the law has a very high standard for what constitutes consent. If I can add some clarity, and I, I did not know this when I was investigating. I thought that if two people uh, consent to uh, assaulting each other in a sexual relationship, that that's okay under the eyes of the law. It's not. Consent is a really big thing when you're talking about a rape case. This is an assault case. And an assault, even if the women had said, I want you to punch and choke me, it would still be assault in the eyes of the law. If Gameshi gets off, which I think he will, it will be because the credibility of the witnesses or inconsistency or reasonable doubt has been introduced. It won't be because the judge is convinced that they consented to it. That doesn't matter. It's still considered assault. I think most people are probably inclined to believe that he did actually be these women. But at the same time, you know, we have to cover the realities of what's happening in the courtroom. And, and what's happening in the courtroom is that their credibility is being shot. I think their credibility is being challenged. But to conclude, as so many headlines have, that their credibility is shot is to definitively take a stand on whether or not the lack of memory of certain incidental details or the lack of memory about what followed the assault actually introduces reasonable doubt into their credibility about the assault itself. That is the question before the judge. You can't make a judgment on that, and, and no newspaper should be making a judgment on that. I, I think you're underplaying what was actually in those emails and what was actually 
being said in court. I mean, it's not just that, but the witnesses haven't really behaved particularly well. There has been evidence of collusion between witnesses. That's a big no-no, even if the witnesses didn't know it at the time. It's been a lot of compounding problems with the credibility of the people who have come forward that the defense lawyer has very effectively pointed out. And it would be a disservice to the reader to not cover that and to be wishy-washy about it. I think a lot of the coverage has been really, really good. I can point to some really fantastic coverage. For example, I think Chatelaine and Sarah Bosfield's done an excellent job in trying to not only cover what's happening in the courtroom, but to also try and give it a lot of context. And that's, I think, what's really important here. You're right. The Globe and Mail has done a great job. Chatelaine's done a great job. But I'm sorry to take a position, as you just did, on that they didn't behave well. It's just such a crazy idea. I can't give any quarter to that. If you and I got punched in the face... And then 10 years later, the cop said, if anybody's been punched in the face by this same person, we'd like the information. And you and I both came and gave that information. And then later, you and I had a conversation about it and said, boy, I really hope that guy who punched us in the face gets locked up over this. What does the behavior of the victim have to do with the guilt or innocence of the accused? Now, I'm not trying to say that the witnesses were bad. I can completely understand in their situation, I probably would have done exactly the same thing. What I'm trying to say here is that It seems like the Crown didn't prepare them properly and didn't warn them about how it would look to a court of law for them to collude or appear to be colluding on their stories. Somebody, I think, failed to prepare them and to give them the information and the heads up they needed to know how to, quote unquote, behave properly for the court. And that is where I think our criminal justice system has actually done the witnesses very wrong. I think that when you use the word collude, and we've been hearing that word so much lately, it has this sinister overtone that these people got together and and concocted a story. They colluded to bring him down. No, the story had been told a decade earlier in a legal context, like collusion could be that you heard a news story and then it could be argued that you were influenced by it. And I think that's some of the nuances getting lost in the coverage as well. Jen, I don't think we're going to get a chance to talk about the third topic today. What was our third topic again? Real estate? Let's skip the third topic. Safe to say that I thought that Kathy Tomlinson's report about house flipping in BC was terrific. And uh, you and I can argue about real estate coverage uh, next time you come on. Okay, let's totally argue about real estate coverage. Oh my God, everybody in Canada loves it when you argue about real estate coverage. It's fun. Jen Gerson, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Email me anytime, jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. And we are on Twitter at Canada Land. Jen, where can people find you? If you are an egg anonymous and have some very angry opinions about women, uh, you can definitely reach me on Twitter at Jen Gerson, J-E-N-G-E-R-S-O-N. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Canada Land at the Movies is back in Toronto with the Review Cinema. Thursday, February 25th, Robin Doolittle and I will be screening Shattered Glass. Come check it out. The next episode of Canada Land will be up on Monday. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. I make this show with Kevin Sexton. If you like this show, please support us. 